Hello and welcome to the New Books in Historical Fiction. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and today it gives me great pleasure to welcome Jill Paul to the channel. We're here to discuss Jill's new novel, The Lost Daughter, which was released this week in the United States following its initial publication in the UK last year. Jill is the author of several historical novels rooted in recent history, featuring real historical characters set in tumultuous eras and events. She was born in Scotland and today makes her home in London. In addition to writing her very popular novels, which have been translated into 20 languages, she's a popular speaker on subjects including royalty, the Romanoffs, and writing. The Lost Daughter is Jill's second novel about the Romanoff Grand Duchesses, and both novels imagine an alternative history in which first Tatiana, the focus of The Secret Wife, and now Maria, the focus of The Lost Daughter, escaped the massacre in Ekaterinburg in July of 1918. I read both this summer while I was in St. Petersburg, one of the key settings for The Lost Daughter, and I enjoyed both thoroughly. I'm usually quite skeptical about these alternative history narratives concerning the last imperial family, but like all of Jill's novels, these were meticulously researched with plots that kept me turning the pages. I'm delighted that the U.S. release of The Lost Daughter by HarperCollins this month brings Jill to the show today, and I'm really looking forward to discussing The Lost Daughter with her. Jill, welcome. Jennifer, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here talking to you. Well, I'm excited to have you here, and I think we should just dive right in. Um, And my first question, the first uh, thing I'd like to talk about is um, that in The Secret Wife, um, the book that precedes The Lost Daughter about Maria's elder sister, Tatiana, you shared with readers in the back of the book that you became interested in the story of the last imperial family in a kind of interesting way. And I thought that would be a marvelous place for us to begin, because clearly the Romanovs kept their claws into you for not. (laughs) They certainly did. Um, I don't want to give away my age on air like this, but I was when I was a teenager, the graves of the Romanovs had not been found. So the whole mystery was still up in the air. Nobody knew exactly what had happened to them. I mean, it was highly suspected that the family had been killed because none of them had shown up in public, at least. But that mystery was still there. And in 1976, Anthony Summers and Tom Mangold published a book, File on the Tsar, with a very detailed explanation of how they could have got out of Ekaterinburg that night and survived. So as a teenager, I thought that was immensely exciting. And um, I totally believe that some of them must have escaped. But then in 1991, the first grave was dug up and the bones were compared but it was found that two, the two youngest um, were missing. Well, it was either going to be Alexei and Anastasia or Alexei and Maria. So maybe still the possibility remained that some had had survived. And then in 2007, along came the second grave and DNA technology proved that the whole family plus their four retainers had been killed in Ekaterinburg. And then what happened next? I mean, Russia kept coming into my life in lots of different ways, through work, through just things I came across, through friends. And then um, a a friend called Richard told me that Helen Rappaport had written about the four sisters, the four Romanov girls, and there was also a TV documentary about them. So instantly I rushed to find that. And uh, there was a little story in there about uh, romance that Tatiana, the second daughter, had with a, a handsome cavalry officer called Dmitri Malema. And that became the spark of the novel called The Secret Wife. Hel- Helen's book is wonderful. Oh, isn't it Four so sisters. good? And, and also the ra- the ra- oh, it's so good. <laughs> and the race to save yeah. the Romanoffs I yeah. enjoyed as well. 
I was sorry to hear she had given up the Romanovs and she's sort of shunted into a different railway side. Well, she's but, written um, three books. So that them. is probably yeah. one of your. She's, yeah. Yeah. Catherine Burke as well, right? Um, so, but but hers was was probably a very uh, key source really for you was, yeah. um, in writing these both of these novels, yeah. Because they, it, it, I think, more than any other book, it goes into a lot of detail about the the girls mm-hmm. themselves, um, each in as an individual. Yes. Um, I think that your research is is one of the reasons I enjoyed both of your books so much because you you do put in a, a ton of really accurate historical detail, and and I think that's true of your other books as well about the Titanic and Wallace Simpson, Elizabeth Taylor, Richard Burton, and also the Crimean War. Um, how do you go about your research? Do you delve into books <laughs> or do you go to the actual locations of the of the novels? What how what's your oh, method? This research is the really fun bit of the job, you know, because writing's hard work. And the publicizing is hard work, but research just means sitting and reading for months on end, which is kind of, if you'd asked me when I was a kid of aged about seven or eight, what I wanted to do when I grew up, it would be to try and find somebody to pay me for just sitting and reading books. So part of the way there, but not all the way. <laughs> so when I'm researching a new subject, um, it's quite good as a historian to try and go to the primary sources where they exist. So in the case of the Romanovs, that's their letters and diaries, which fortunately have been translated by Helen Azar, because I'm afraid I don't speak Russian. Oh, Helen's a great friend of mine. She's wonderful. Yeah, she's she's wonderful. And her translation of Maria's diary is coming out this October. But I've seen, I've actually got a proof of it. So I've seen that already, but she does such a wonderful job. And she's so helpful. I've been able to email her with questions along the way as well. Um, after the, I have to tell you. I have to tell, oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> no, I, I just I played a teeny tiny role in this because I carried the copy of Maria's diary <gasps> from the did from you? Moscow back to wow. the US. I did. I mean, it was like a photocopy, but it felt very um, like I'm carrying the Grand Duchess's diary. Oh, how wonderful! <laughs> it felt very Excellent. romantic. Yeah. <laughs> so after primary sources, so after primary on, sources, I'll go to memoirs, eyewitness memoirs for the time. And um, they can actually be more useful than letters and diaries, in fact. So Pierre Gilliard, who was a tutor to the Romanov children, wrote a wonderful memoir, really telling us what they were like about individuals. And I think Helen Rappaport had used that a lot as one of her sources. There's also Alexander's friend, Anna Virubova. I hope you're going to correct my Russian pronunciation on the way through. <laughs> Virubova. Thank Varubava. you, thank you. <laughs> so these sort of primary sources. She's an interesting yeah, character. Absolutely, best friend of Alexandra, or lady in waiting to her. Um, and from there, I'll go on to the major historians of the era, like Helen Rappaport and Greg King and Penny Wilson, Robert Massey, Andrew Cook, and just read around them. And following rabbit holes, that's a fun thing to do in research. You find one fact in a footnote and you go off and research that and you end up somewhere completely different. So, um, Visiting the country, exactly. visiting the country to do the primary research, I will usually do after I've written the first draft of the novel, um, because it's then that I want uh-huh. to fill in, to colour in the details, you know, to find out what colour is the water in the River Neva? What colour is, what does the fountain sound like at Peterhof? Or, you know, the tiny little details that you can't get from books or you couldn't get if you just zoomed in on Google Earth, which is something authors can do now if you just want to see what a place looks like. And I have to admit, I didn't get to a Katrinburg, but I've been 
up and down the streets of it in Google Earth to see. And it's much greener than I'd expected it to be. That's the kind of detail you don't get in mm. the guidebook. Back when I was writing about, uh, the, I've got a novel called The Affair about Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton shooting Cleopatra in Rome in 1962. So I went to the Shinoshita Studios where they have a little museum of artefacts left over from the filming. And it was just this room at the back of the lot and nobody was there. And they had the gold chainmail dress that Elizabeth Taylor wore as Cleopatra for the triumphal entry to Rome and nobody was watching so I just picked up a bit of it and fingered it and my goodness it was so heavy my respect for that woman knew no bounds the (laughs) fact that she stood around filming in that dress day after day but you know that's that's what I like to use the location visit for to get those little details that you wouldn't otherwise be able to get from books fantastic that that's just that's just um, I, I can imagine I can imagine you um, going up and down the streets of St. Petersburg um, for for the for the oh, lost daughter. Goodness, I love um, St. Petersburg. What was your favorite source material? Oh, it's it's fantastic. It's just There's so no place glitzy. like it. There's no place Absolutely like it. glitzy everywhere. Everywhere is gilt and precious <laughs> stones and more surprises around every corner. And I have to say, mm. one of my favorite bits was the Fabergé Museum where they've got that room with the Mm. nine of the original imperial eggs. Unfortunately, they were behind glass and were security guards standing. So I couldn't actually pick them up. So you couldn't finger those. (laughs) (laughs) It was a shame, but it's such a special. Though you have have a bit of, yeah, you have a bit of Fabergé in each of the books, don't you? (laughs) And I bought myself a little pendant at the Fabergé Museum. I thought I needed a souvenir. Oh, I, I think that very definitely <laughs> a souvenir. What were some of your favourite um, source materials, if, if you can pick a favourite? Well, definitely Helen Rappaport's books. Um, King and Wilson, which mm. was published, I think, a couple of decades ago, has so much detail. It's wonderful. But I also follow all the yeah. Facebook Romanov groups because they these people are total experts that have devoted their lives to it. And they come up mm. every day, more or less, with new photographs and facts. And they discuss with each other what particular translations mean. And making contact with them has been incredibly helpful to me in my research. They're really a generous, generous, they're a generous yeah. group. I, I used to think I used to think that I was the only person who geeked out about the Romanovs. And then I went on Pinterest and learned that that oh, yeah. wasn't true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I'll, ne- I'll never be lonely again. <laughs> Tell me, um, one thing that struck me is you chose Tatiana, who I think is um, one, of the, one of the more glamorous of, of the four mm-hmm. sisters. But I wonder why you didn't um, choose Olga, the, the elder, who also had kind of a romance. She did. Um, but you chose to go with yes. Maria. Um, yeah. Maybe Olga, maybe you're still working on an Olga. Oh, I'm not writing anything off in the future because I absolutely love writing about this family. But the thing that stopped me choosing Olga was that um, we know that she was very depressed and under house arrest. Well, I mean, who wouldn't Mm. be? But she really suffered quite badly from depression. And that could get very tedious for the reader after a while. It's just it's not got the same energy that perhaps the other characters had so that's why I, I didn't go with Olga and I avoided Anastasia as well because she's just been done so often wow. in films in children's books in and also is it um uh, oh 
what's her name? The new I Am Anastasia, Ariel Lahon. She's written it's a wonderful book. Yes, with I the Anna it was Anderson great. story, That's a great and book. it alternates with Maria's story with um, Anastasia's story, and you don't quite know where it's going to end up. It's really cleverly written. I love that book. I thought it was mm. very well done. Yeah. Um, tell me, tell me this. Um, in in the Secret Wife, you told the story from Dimitri mm. Malama's point of view. Not Tatiana's, but but Maria is absolutely center of in the lost daughter. Um, was Maria much easier to sort of get inside her head than Tatiana? Uh, when I wrote the Secret Wife, I knew I wanted it to be about first love, the power of first love. That was the starting point, the first thought, mm-hmm. and so the next idea was that it was going to be tested by separation, which obviously the Russian Revolution would cause them to be separated, and. It seemed to me that Dimitri was going to have a more interesting story to tell because he was outside the house. But it was also to do with Tatiana's character, as you know it. She was quite a reserved character, um, quite self-contained, very capable and competent. You know, when they were nursing during the war, you know, First World War soldiers were brought back to Starsko Solo and they were nursing them there. And Olga struggled a bit with the, the gorier aspects of that. But Tatiana took to nursing completely. She was clearly very competent. She was the one that um, calmed their mother down. But I suppose I couldn't feel mm. her character in, in such a strong way as I did with Maria Um, Now, Maria was the middle child who felt a bit left out. There were the older two girls, Olga and Tatiana, who hung out together a lot. And then the younger two who were still quite childish. And she was stuck in the middle. And she had that middle child syndrome. We know she wrote a letter to her mother when she was, I think, eight or nine, saying that she didn't feel loved. Very sad. And Alexandra wrote back Mm. a kind of, oh, don't be silly, of course you're loved type letter. But um, the effect on Maria's character was to make her want to befriend everybody she met. You know, I I feel that there was a kind of neediness to be liked in her. And that was something I felt I could get a grip on to write about. My agent tells me that female characters are more popular as the protagonists in historical novels. But um, I love writing men as well. I've written two. I've written two novels. I've written Dimitri Malama was the protagonist in The Secret Wife. And in my Titanic novel as well, I have a a male protagonist, a a first-class steward on the ship. So, yeah, it's it's good to have the difference, to look at things a different way. The other thing about the novels is that both stories toggle between two Mm -hmm. eras. Um, In the case of The Lost Daughter, we're in the 1970s in Australia for much of much of the book, um, and then back in, in Russia after uh, the revolution. And this is an approach I think you take with some of your other books. Um, is, this, is this sort of the way you find your way into the story? I think it's, it's quite a good way to make history more accessible, particularly when you're talking about a period of incredibly complex history like the Russian Revolution and the Civil War. Um, it could put some readers off if you just plunge straight into the streets of St. Petersburg. Um, But by doing it with a modern plot, Mm -hmm. it gives them a way in and they can learn about Russian history with the modern characters. So, for example, in The Secret Wife, I've got a woman called Kitty Fisher who starts researching her great-grandfather, who was a white Russian who fled Russia after the Civil War. And um, readers can learn about Russian history as she learns about his history. So it makes it just, it's an easy entry point to the story. Mm -hmm. Apart from that, the other 
side of that story is told by Dmitry Malama. And of course, he wouldn't have known the bigger picture of what was going on in the ground because he was fighting in the Russian Civil War. He probably didn't know from one minute to the next who mm-hmm. was in charge. You know, it's just, you know, what's happening in the field around you. And it's he wouldn't have an overview of anything. So I needed a character who was able to tell us what was going on and having a modern character does that. But there's another purpose with dual timelines, which is that they can kind of bounce off each other and reflect on each other. So they'll point out the similarities and also the differences between our attitudes in the 21st century and back whenever you're telling the story. So attitudes to love and marriage, to family, to religion, to class, because of course, all these things were so much more important back in 1918 to the Romanov family class was very important. Their orthodox religion was crucially important to them in a way that it's hard for us to understand nowadays. Um, that, but, you know, so that contrast was there. And so you try to, with the dual timeline novels, what I'm trying to do is to arrange the chapters so that they, the themes come up at similar times. So you'll finish one theme in the modern plot mm-hmm. and it'll be picked up in the old one. Which is why I'm what's known known as a plotter amongst novelists rather than a pantser. Do, do you use that phrase, the pantser? Yeah. pantser. No, I have I have yes, to plot mine very carefully because yeah. I'm trying to make the two timelines fall into the same place or to reflect on each other at roughly the same time. And the other thing about dual timelines... Well, I think you succeed very well. Thank you very much. I mean, the other thing about Mm -hmm. dual timelines is that with some big stories, they're not solved. You know, the answer doesn't come out within a generation. Sometimes it takes a few generations for the truth to emerge. And and by giving yourself that space of two stories, you can do it that way. I I have written novels that are just one timeline as well. (laughs) It, It does make life a bit more difficult. Maybe I just like the challenge. Do you use um, a, a certain kind of software for this? Because it, it has to be very complicated um, to arrange everything. Jennifer, in, in I think way. you probably do you Scrivener. You probably realised when we were trying to set up the recording for this podcast that I'm not the biggest, most technical person <laughs> in the universe. And no, I don't use software. I cut out little bits of paper and staple them together. And, um, that's how I get my plan. Ah. You know, so one one fact for one side, and then the next chapter is going to cover this. So it's a bit of a, a patchwork jigsaw paper thing that I lay out on the carpet. So completely non-technical. <laughs> I have very un- look. Got it. Well, you know, I have very low tech methods for all aspects um, of my writing. Just, I-, <laughs> I think, well, I think if it works, you should continue to do it, and it truly <laughs> does work. Um, Claire Massoud once told me that she writes she writes with fountain pen in a spiral, oh, nice. and her you know, class is very very long, and yeah, so. That is that is classy. okay. I, yeah, <laughs> she's classy. Um, but I, when you know, when you were talking about the themes that that sort of run through the book, I, I'm I'm reminded that in the Lost Daughter, one of the big themes is fatherhood. Actually, oddly yeah. enough, when we're talking about two young women sort of sort of grappling with things, but that theme kind of really pervades the mm-hmm. whole novel. Um, and what is a good father? 
Um, and I wondered if you'd talk to the listeners a bit about I'm glad that. you picked up on that, because that was a theme that I was thinking about as I was writing the book. What difference does it make in life, whether you've had a good father or a bad father? First of all, what makes a good father? And I, I was really lucky, personally. I had an exceptionally wonderful father who's sadly no longer with us. But, you know, all everything that you get from a good parent, you take with you through the rest of your life. So it makes – it just gives you – a good father gives you a bit more confidence that you can cope with the world, that, you know, that you're capable of, of doing things. I mean, I've got lots of friends who didn't have good fathers and they work things out themselves, but it's just a bit harder, I think. So I wanted to have a range of different fathers in The Lost Daughter and, and show how people coped with what's happened to them in their childhood so I suppose the influence of therapy is in there, you know, how, how it affects you as an adult if you haven't yeah. had a good bonding relationship with your primary carers when you're younger. Mm. And of course, Nicholas was a good father, uh, particularly for a, um, a ruling monarch. I think he spent a lot of time with his children um, compared to, say, George V. Um, and he was very easy yeah. with them. yeah. I love the photo that you can find on on the internet of him teaching Anastasia how to smoke. Because, <laughs> of course, they all smoked. <laughs> the girls all smoked, which people are quite shocked by today. But it was, of course, it was just a common thing that day. But, I mean, Nicholas did spend time with them, but also it was not in the same way that parents do nowadays. They they did live in a nursery. They did have governesses and tutors and they would just come and visit their parents at certain times. So it wasn't like the way that I grew up where dad was kind of around apart from when he was at work. They, they would have set times when they saw him. Um, they probably, you know, spent more most mm-hmm. time with him once they were under house arrest, when they were all together 24 hours a day. Right. Which sort of brings us to the beginning of, of the book, because as, as The Lost Daughter opens, Maria is actually alone with her parents, which has to have been kind of a unique situation, because she and Nicholas and Alexandra have been sent to Ekaterinburg, whereas the, uh, the three sisters and Alexei are back in yeah. Tobolsk, because Alexei is too ill to travel. Um, and then um, they settle into the Apatyev house, uh, which is sort of sinisterly known as the House of Special Purpose. And then she meets some of the guards. And um, I think that um, the three, it's three, basically, guards, each has kind of a different role to play. And I wondered if you'd talk a little bit about um, each of them and um, how they interact with Maria. Uh, in the house, there's there's a guard called Peter. I mean, these are my made up characters the one that's that's a real yeah. character is Ivan Skorokodov and this story has emerged that um Maria became very friendly with him and on her 19th birthday in June 1918 he brought a cake to the house for her for a birthday gift for her so the family shared it and she went outside afterwards to thank him for the cake and um she and Ivan were caught in what was described as compromising circumstances by Avdeev the commandant of the guards and Ivan was dismissed and some historians um after that security tightened up around the family a new commandant Jakub Yurovsky came in who would be the head of the executioners. And um, some historians think that um, Maria's flirtation with Ivan could have brought on the, um, the decision to execute the family. But 
I have to say that Helen Azar, your friend, doesn't believe this at all. She thinks the whole guard story mm-hmm. comes from a mistranslation of something that a priest said and that Maria had no special relationships with any of the guards at all. <laughs> but it was that fact about the birthday cake and Ivan that I saw, I think, first in Helen Rappaport's yeah. book that I thought, oh, that's very interesting because... I think if I was held captive somewhere like that, and you know, by the time they got to Katrinburg in that house, they were um, they were just on the first floor. They just in a few rooms. There were there was a great barricade around the house. There were machine gun posts in the corners. The windows had been whitewashed to stop them seeing out and other people seeing in. So it's becoming seriously terrifying. They've got food shortages. Their possessions are being rifled. They're only allowed out to the yard for very limited exercise every day. It's getting more scary. And Maria, I think, would have responded by trying to befriend her captors, the younger guards anyway. And I know, I'm sure that's what I would have done. It seems to make sense. And you can look at it in the context of um, the phenomenon of Stockholm Syndrome, which in 1973, mm. um, some hostages were taken in a bank as from a man who robbed the bank. And afterwards, when they were released, they all refused to testify against their captor it's it's a syndrome, a psychological syndrome, that when you've been afraid that you're about to be killed, and you know, obviously the high adrenaline stakes of that feeling, and then your captor decides not to kill you, you're just dis- disproportionately grateful to him as if he's he's personally rescued mm. you. And if you're dependent on him for your needs being met for food and so forth, then you can become very attached. And I wondered if there was possibly even an element of this going on with Maria in her relationship to the guards. Maybe she was just thinking, if I'm really, really nice to them, they're going to make sure I'm all right. That that was my thinking there. Mm. I also, as you pointed out, I also had her um, making friends or having a relationship with two other guards who were both my invention. Um, one nice, one not so nice. Bit of contrast in there. Yeah. Right. And she ends up with a nice one. I did have to. After all she'd been through, I did have to let Maria end up with a nice <laughs> husband. Yes. <laughs> Sure. Well, and 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 so and and without giving too much of the plot away, um, they she does end up with a nice one, and it's. It, I always think about Maria. Um, you know, they they said she was the prettiest of the of the girls, and the one who really wanted to be um, sort of a wife and mother. She wanted to have lots of babies, um, and that Lord Louis Malcolm yeah. uh, was just. He said crackers Isn't that about a sweet her story? and kept a picture of her for the for his whole life. It's yeah. very sweet. Yeah, even though they were. I think yeah. they were first cousins. Um, so that might have been a complicated uh, marriage. But she makes a very different kind of marriage to someone from a very, as, as you say, the whole issue of class comes into this because uh, in marrying Peter, uh, it's a very different kind of sure. man than, than she might have been expected to marry. But despite everything, they're very happy. Um, and although they're, they're kind of, they have a very challenging life. Um, so you gave her a... a, a Lovely marriage, as as I think Maria really wanted. Um, I thought that was Thank great. Thank you. Well, of course, the revolution turned everything upside down, <laughs> not just for them, for virtually all Russians. Um, before the revolution, um, the um, the 
Nicholas and Alexandra had looked for suitors for their four girls amongst the pool of European royalty. There had been, as you say, Prince Louis of Battenberg was keen on Maria and Prince David of Great Britain, who went on to be Edward VIII that abdicated the throne. He was said to be keen on Tatiana. So there were there was interest from the outside world, but all the girls had their favourites amongst the officers of the Imperial Guard or on board the Royal, royal Yacht, the Standard. And um, Maria had actually been keen on a man, an officer called Kolya Demenkov, and who she wrote about in her diaries. And she mm. called herself Mrs. Demenkov. And all her sisters teased her because he was slightly plump and they called him Fat Kolya. And um, they teased Maria about being plump <laughs> as well. But um, no, she was very keen on them. So if the revolution hadn't happened, the chances are that the, the Romanov girls would have married either a foreign royal or a Russian aristocrat, somebody of the upper classes. That's, you know, what they knew, what they'd been brought up mm-hmm. for. But the revolution turned absolutely everything on its head. And um, and in my novel, at least, she ends up escaping from Ekaterinburg with the help of this nice guard. And, of course, their challenges only just start there because... Um, you know, in Bolshevik Russia, it's a fight for survival. All the economic experiments that were introduced in the 1920s, the collective farms and so forth, caused a mass famine. So just being able to stay alive was the big challenge in these years, especially when you're on the run. And you've probably got right. the Tsarist, the, you know, the secret police coming after you because they didn't want any Romanovs to survive in case they tried to come and, and take back their throne. I mean, what you, I mean, I know you know this, Jennifer, that, that Lenin's hold on the country was very tenuous in the in the early 1920s. He only controlled a very small area of it, you know, this vast, vast country. And so if if a group had got behind any surviving Romanov, they could have tried to put them back on the throne and got some popular support for that. So that's that's what they were worried about. But yes, I did have to give Indeed and, and you I did have to give Maria and Peter a bit of a hard time because it was a hard time throughout the twenties and thirties and the forties for the people of Russia. So that's that's what I did. I had them living well and uh, through that. And and you actually take Maria back not only I mean you leave her in Russia, which is kind of um unusual for these alternative history novels. Um, but not only do you leave her in Russia, but you leave her right in Petrograd and mm. later, which is later Leningrad. And I thought that was a really interesting choice. And, and as such, she is witness to this entire cruel 20th century in the mm. Soviet Union. Um, and, and you just don't even give her a break. Like she's, she's got the terror of the thirties and the 900 day siege of Leningrad during world war two. And then the gulag. And tell us, uh, tell us a little bit about why you chose to leave her in Russia that, and she, so I think one of the, maybe it was Pierre Gilliard said that Maria was the most Russian of the, of the yeah. daughters. Maybe, maybe not, but um, you, but you left her there. Um, and I thought that was really an interesting approach. I'd, uh, what what was behind your thinking for that? Well, first of all, I'd already written The Secret Wife and I, I knew what had happened to Tatiana mm-hmm. and Dmitry Malama and I wanted to do something completely different with this novel. So that was the starting point. But also on a practical level, the way I had Maria escape from Ekaterinburg with the help of a guard, they weren't going to get very far. You know, they didn't have a means of transport. <laughs> <laughs> so it was just practical. And right. Maria is very innocent about the facts of life and astonished to find out that 
quite soon after this, she's pregnant. So before long, they have a child in tow, and that makes it even harder. You know, the vast distances of Russia, you know, to get any to any border was virtually impossible. You know, Vladivostok, Vladivostok in the mm. east is thousands of miles away. You know, the, the, the northern ports are frozen over in winter. Um, so I had her heading back with Peter to the place where she'd grown up because she was hoping that one of her siblings... Mm might have escaped, at least one of them might have escaped as well. And if they had, it seemed to her logical that they might come back to the palace where they'd all lived, to the Alexander Palace in Starskosolo. And so that's why they came back there. But it was also because there was this mass exodus into the towns um, as in the era of the 1920s with the farms there just wasn't the work. So people were coming to town and getting jobs in factories. So it all kind of made sense. And once I had her there with a child without money, clearly uh, there just didn't seem any logical way way that I could get her out of Russia. (laughs) So she was stuck there really. I'm trying to make Mm -hmm. it as realistic as possible. So yes, she goes through the horrific well, I think I think you Thank succeeded. You. Yeah. I've also, I mean, there's a personal interest here. I've always been fascinated by what it's like to live in a police state where your na- not just your mm. neighbours could inform against you, your own children are being encouraged to inform against you. So, um, and that's a really terrifying thing to contemplate. And um, and then the siege of Leningrad is this huge, awful episode of the Second World War that still to this day, not that well known. I mean, I certainly wasn't taught about it at school. Um, the, the way that Joe Stalin, Uncle Joe, as he liked to be called, completely abandoned the population of St. Petersburg, or Petrograd, as it was then called. He didn't attempt to defend the city as German troops encircled it, didn't airdrop food to them. Um, he just left them there, surrounded by the, the um, German army. And... I mean, estimates vary, but at least mm-hmm. seven to 800,000 people died of starvation over that period. That's between a quarter and a third of the pre-war population. And it's only recently, it wasn't talked about under the Soviet, in the Soviet era, it's only now that people are starting to write their memoirs of what it was like to live through that siege, about how you had to scrape wallpaper paste off the walls and eat it, hoping there was some nutrition in it, or you boiled shoe leather, hoping to get just a little bit of protein out of the Mm. shoe leather. And, um, you know, little things like it was the strongest, fittest men that died first. And I was just fascinated to read these memoirs that are still coming out because there are still people alive that somehow made it through that awful time i mean it's absolutely beyond belief oh oh yeah yes i i have a friend whose mother is in her 90s and she was in in leningrad as a girl and it was just horrific the whole thing and i think she finally got out as one of your characters does uh, along the ice road um over lake ladaga so that's another just extraordinary thing about the siege is this this they build this road over Lake Ladaga to get primarily children out but also to bring yeah. food in um so it's a it's, a, it's an extraordinary yeah. and Maria I, I was very glad to yeah exactly I was very glad Maria had bought all that <laughs> oh she's very practical knowing knowing what was coming I was relieved <laughs> yeah she's very practical <laughs> now um you said that you brought Maria back to Petrograd 
primarily because she was hoping that one of her siblings would be there. And I kept hoping that Maria and Tatiana would have a uh, mm. reunion, but they don't. And um, of course, Tatiana in your, in your earlier novel has left Russia. Um, but I wondered uh, if you didn't feel a strong temptation to, to have a meeting between the two. I don't think I considered it. Sorry, sorry, Jennifer. I don't think I did consider it. Oh, really? I didn't. I didn't see how it could happen practically. I mean, I did have Maria making contact with relatives in Denmark and they hadn't heard from Tatiana. And, and for Tatiana to suddenly arrive and find them would have been such a huge coincidence. And I'm not really a fan of coincidence in novels. Well, not in, not in the kind of realistic historical mm. fiction I'm writing. It can feel like the novelist is cheating in a way if, if you just, oh, whoops, here's Tatiana, great. Mm. So yeah, I just, I didn't really see a way to make it happen. <laughs> oh, perhaps I should have. Okay, but you do... <laughs> no, 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 because you had a very moving, you had a very moving sort of meeting between your two protagonists in The Lost Daughter. And we haven't even really touched on the character of Val. And I'd love to spend a little time talking about her because she's equally interesting as Maria and goes on sort of a, a, a journey to become more independent and self-sufficient, just as Maria does. Talk, let, talk to us a little bit about Val Doyle, who um is the modern, the 1970s protagonist. Yes. I mean, we start with Val in 1973 in Sydney, Australia, going to watch Queen Elizabeth II opening the Sydney Opera House. But just as she's about to leave, she gets a call from a nursing home where her elderly father, who's a white Russian emigre, has, um, has been saying some very strange things. So she feels, although they're estranged, she feels she has to go and visit him. And he's saying, I didn't mean to kill her. But he won't specify who it was he didn't mean mm -hmm. to kill. Now, Val's mother has disappeared when she was 12 or 13. She hasn't heard from her since. So she wonders, could her father have killed her mother? But he's he's got dementia. She can't get any more information out of him. And then he dies. When she's clearing out his house, then she begins to find some clues that help her to unravel what might have happened in her own family. Now, at this stage, there is very little crossover between the two plots, the Maria plot and the Val plot, apart from the fact that Val had a white Russian father. But gradually, I'll bring the two stories together. Of course, Val's story is also coming into mm -hmm. the spectrum of talking about fathers, because she had a terrible, controlling, cruel father. And as a result, when she got to the age of 18, she married the first guy that asked her. And, you know, guess what? Surprise, surprise. It turns out that he's a cruel and controlling person as well, because subconsciously we seek what we're used to, unless we've really processed it and consciously decided to choose something different. So she she chose a man who kind of echoed what had happened to her with her father. And as the novel opens, she's really under his thumb. And um, she has a little daughter, Nicole, who's five. And it's about Val finding the courage and the final push to get away from this awful marriage that um, that, that story is about at that point. So it's about a growth in confidence. And you bring in... Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, and I think, I think Maria goes through a, a similar, so she becomes very capable um, throughout the throughout the novel, uh, with all these sort of challenges that she's external yeah. challenges 
that she's faced with. Um, and I, I liked very much that you included um, a chapter in white emigre history, which is the whole Harbin. Uh, China's yeah. situation because Val's mother is is yes. Chinese. Um, to, ha, what was your research like about that? I mean, how did you stumble on that aspect of of emigre history? Uh, I think it, it was one of these footnotes <laughs> that I stumbled across in a book and then just pursued. <laughs> and I am lucky enough to have a friend here who knows a bit about that that side of history. Leslie Downer is her name, and she gave me a bit of help. I didn't manage to visit Harbin. That was one place where I went in and explored via Google Earth, which was great fun. It looks gorgeous up there. Mm. And uh, it is gorgeous. Oh, you've been yeah. there? Yeah. Uh, wow. Once, yes. A long time Back ago. <laughs> but it's very, yeah, it's very Russian. Yeah. But it's interesting because um, Harbin um, kind of plays a role in, in um, because of the Vietnam. Uh, I'm, I'm also a food writer. So, for example, beef stroganoff is taken to Harbin, where it's sort of spiced up by Russian and by Chinese people there. And then American GIs bring it to America in the 1950s. And so Harbin kind of plays this wacky role in bringing Russian culture huh. to America very much sort of in a, in a backward way. Um, so I'm always fascinated by, by Harbin. And the other thing that was great in the novel was, of course, I immediately assumed that Val was a descendant of Maria, but then I quickly realized that because I love to follow the <laughs> Um And then I quickly had to cross that off the possible list because she's clearly not, <laughs> there's no way that can be the case. Um, so I thought it was a, it was a marvelously um, sort of nuanced uh, approach in in the novel, and I liked when Val actually goes to to Harbin to find yeah, her yeah, mother, doesn't yeah. she? And follows yeah. the trail from there. That was- and it's also about um, Val growing in confidence and-, and and trying to overcome the the past that she's had with this terrible father to to find happiness and love for herself and for her daughter Nicole. And just to, to loop back to something you said earlier, um, I, I, I thought that in addition to Val and Maria and Peter, all of the, the minor characters were really well done, particularly the, um, the secret policeman. Um, you said that you've always been fascinated to kind of um, live in a police state. And there was this marvelous subplot of Maria helping people find their lost relatives because so many people become sort of just lost in the chaos of the twenties and thirties and forties. Can you speak a little bit about that subplot and the, and the very nuanced character of, I forget. Um, The secret police. (laughs) Well, I have the, I have the book right here. Um, I can, I, while you talk, I can, I can try and find his name because he really was an interesting character. Yeah, Um, I didn't. And, and the idea that Maria becomes, yeah. What I wanted to show with him is that nobody is completely evil or, you know, completely good. He was a he was working for the secret police, um, but he was a nice, you know, he had some good instincts as well. He did end up helping Maria. And her organization to find lost people seemed a natural thing that she would do when she was looking for her own lost relatives because she was going to the places where people, strangers coming into town would hang out and try and find each other so that that was the only logic to that but yes <laughs> it's terrible that I've forgotten the name of my own character but uh yeah he was well he's he's called Yuri he's Yuri. Yuri. Yes. 
<laughs> uh, no, he was a very interesting character, and and I I think that um, the idea of the card file that she keeps and when people ask her to you know to find uh, people, I got very oh, nervous yeah. about that during the terror because I thought oh she's going to get into big yeah. trouble for that, um, and she does in a way doesn't she, she does get into big trouble. Got it. Um, not just because of the card file, because of something that she's brought with her from Ekaterinburg. But uh, she was always get, going to get into trouble somehow. So it was just choosing the way. <laughs> um, it, was, it was Everybody did. It was so hard exactly. to stay, you know, on an even keel. You know, when you go to your factory and you're asked to testify yeah. against a work colleague or you're asked to go to school and testify against a teacher, you can't coast through that kind of society without getting into trouble at some point. Well, it'd be very, very difficult, it seems to me, especially if you're a very honest person. Very hard. As she is. As she is. And another um, chapter in Leningrad's history that I think you um, bring to life really well is the painstaking work that's done after the Second World War to restore the palaces. And in, and you spend a lot of time with us in, in um, Petrodoriets or Peterhof. Um, did you did you I go did. out there and, and look at the the, they have the, well, these wonderful photographs of what it, because the Nazis oh, really just yeah, bombed completely. the bejesus out of these yeah. places. Especially the Alexandra, the Catherine Palaces were just reduced to, to ruins. And they're fantastic now. I mean, the work is ongoing, yeah. but it's taken real experts in every single little field, you know, from woodwork to metalwork and jewellery, gold coverings. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a technical expert on this, but it's just glittering and perfect when you walk around there. They've reconstructed the amber room in the Catherine Palace where all the walls are mm. covered in amber, um, framed in gilt. And, uh, and the Nazis had looted that. In fact, there's a huge mystery. Nobody actually knows yet, I don't think, where the amber went. But that's all been reconstructed and you walk around and each room is more magnificent than the last. I found it incredibly moving to go there. And I did it after I'd written my first draft of the novel, of the secret wife, in fact, that was that was back in 2016, and uh, I just absolutely loved St Petersburg. I loved that mixture of the the Romanov grandeur, you know, when they, when Peter the Great tried to build a city to rival Versailles and and Paris and Venice and and London, and uh, he really succeeded. I mean, it's just extraordinary. You turn a corner and there's another beautiful church that's not even in the guidebooks because it's just like yet another church. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I loved it. I love the food as that's well. That's right. And, but you also bring... Yeah. yeah. Oh, the food. Yeah, the food's yeah. pretty good. <laughs> food's fantastic. Um, but you also bring... Um, you you bring to life very well the sort of seamier side of the you know the communal apartments and the the very cramped Soviet style um, accommodations and the sort of the the cold streets and the the really just brutal uh, period during the Second World War and where did you find that information in in St Petersburg did you visit some of the museums dedicated to these eras I did or? yes I went. I went around a few museums yeah. there, but once again, it's mostly first-person memoirs and eyewitness testimonies that are the most helpful thing for those little details. I mean, you, when you're writing historical fiction, the last thing you want to do is bog down the narrative in in lots mm. and lots of historical facts. It's not about that. It's about telling a story, but you need enough authentic 
enough of the background to make it feel authentic to the reader so that they don't feel like they're being taught, they're being lectured to, that the story is still the main focus. But I wanted to have the correct sound on the microphones that were attached to the lampposts during the siege of Leningrad, um, the mm-hmm. TikTok sound mm-hmm. that was coming out of them, mm-hmm. um, you know, the pavements, the where they got food. If you can get these little details authentic, but just drop them in here and there, um, and then the reader doesn't even notice them sometimes, but will feel that they're, you know, convinced that they're in the right era. And you try not to get any details like that wrong. I do a vast amount of cross-checking and I'll usually ask some experts in the field to read the proofs for me and tell me if I've made any complete howlers along the way. <laughs> well, I didn't find any, oh, any howlers in, in either of the novels. I, I thoroughly enjoyed both of them. And um, I was, I was um, reading them while working on a cruise ship as a, as a history lecturer. And I mentioned that I was reading the books and a number of the passengers had, um, had read the, um, the secret wife and were very excited to, to read the lost daughter as wow. well. So, Thank you so um, much for that. I, I can tell you that you have fandom in Australia and wow. Canada. And, um, I think I have to give you commission um, for this Jennifer (laughs) that's very kind of you (laughs) (laughs) well I I, as I say I'm I'm very very picky about my alternative history novels there are a lot of bad ones um, but yours was just very compelling and I and I kept sort of turning the I kept sort of getting back to my cabin to read a little bit more um, during the cruise. What, what do you think is the, is because there are so many of these novels. And in fact, we were just talking about um, Edward the eighth kind of having a, um, a penchant for Tatiana and somebody I think is coming out with a novel where in that alternative history, Tatiana is the queen oh. of England um, and she's married to Edward the eighth, uh, but he is already uh, carrying on with Wallace Simpson. And I know you've written about Wallace Simpson. Um, so that, <laughs> I think that's going to oh, be an interesting Oh, what a great one. idea. Um, what do you think is the, the, <laughs> it is an interesting one, isn't it? Um, we'll see, we'll see how well it, it mm. succeeds. Um, but why do you think that we're just constantly fascinated? I mean, the Romanovs just will not no. get their claws out of us. Um, and I, I wonder why you think there's that is. There's a real is. fairy tale archetypal aspect to their story. It's, you know, there's no, it's not as if there's a wicked stepmother or scary ogres or whatever, but there's these beautiful, innocent children, um, especially the princesses. They were one of the richest families of all time. Still, to this day, you know, if you... It, they were one of the richest families ever and um, amazing mm. palaces and grandeur. In fairy stories, of course, the traditional ones, the you know, once they were captured, they would sit around and along would come a handsome prince to rescue them. And we know from Helen Rappaport's book that there were several rescue attempts, but they were all, you know, just disorganised and couldn't possibly work for various reasons. I mean, in the Me Too generation, we want our heroines to rescue themselves. Um, but, uh, you know, like Captain Marvel or something. But, you know, they weren't that kind of girl. So they sat around <laughs> and nobody came to rescue them and they got the wrong ending. And it was a spectacularly mm. brutal, horrible mm. death that they died, these beautiful young girls. So I think it's that sense that it was a fairy tale that got the wrong ending. And I've, I've talked about this before with, yeah. with Princess Diana, the huge amount of shock that the public felt after she died because she was 
beautiful. She was a, a great mother. She was just starting to find her role in the world with her work on the landmines campaign, which was incredibly influential, her work with leprosy, with children. And then she was killed in a grey concrete tunnel by a drunk driver. It, there was this sense of complete disbelief. Yeah. And afterwards, 85% of the British public, when polled, said that they thought there had been some kind of conspiracy, that there must have been, there must be something else that went on, that it couldn't possibly just be the simple explanation that a, a man had drunk too much and was driving too fast to get away from photographers. So at that point, point you know with the conspiracy it happened with JFK as well when you have something so shocking that just feels wrong Mm. then that's when alternative stories creep in and conspiracy theorists creep in and of course with the Romanovs the public struggled to accept it in the 1920s and 1930s and all these imposters sprang up claiming to be um, one or other of the princes I think there's imposters for all of them of course the most famous is Anna, Anna Anderson who said she was Anastasia but um, I think they all had imposters claiming to be them including Alexei and so it's it's mm. it's a fairy story and as alternative historians we can step in and give a different possible outcome that maybe makes the truth more palatable I think mm. I, well, I think you give Maria a very interesting alternative history in which she um, grows and develops and becomes a very strong, self-sufficient um, matriarch. Um, and it's a delightful story to sort of sink into. Thank you. So, I mean, that is the sad bit. As they say in Russia, five five times. <laughs> <laughs> that is the really sad bit. They yeah. had so much potential, these <laughs> girls. You know, that Maria was very artistic. Tatiana was so. a, good at nursing. They could have been wives, mothers, grandmothers. They could have whole new dynasties or, or just you know, descendants who remember them today and all that was stolen from them. And of course, it's nothing. It's a drop in the ocean compared to the millions that were killed in Russia in the 20th century during the gulag system and the secret police system. But um, Mm. it's just that we know about them. We feel that, you know, you look on YouTube and there's videos of them messing around in their garden. There's millions Mm. of photos because, of course, they love their their box Roller skating on the yacht. yeah. Well, and that that plays a part. I, I, that's the other thing we neglected to say is um, they were such shutterbugs, and and um, you bring that in um, to the book. There's a there's a a camera that plays a, a key role, and I I believe that Anastasia is credited with taking the first selfie. <laughs> Because um, she, she is. There's a picture of her um, taking a picture of herself in the mirror, and that's like nobody had maybe ever done. I don't know, um, oh, but wow. it would be like Anastasia to take a selfie. Yeah. I oh, think. absolutely. Um, she's very, very, oh, very playful. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, so tell me, are you going? To, are you going to go back to the Romanovs um, anytime soon? What are you working uh-huh. on right now? Um, I do have a new novel coming out um, uh-huh. next summer, but it's not a Romanov one. I don't have another Romanov one planned at the moment, but I'm definitely not ruling it out because there's just so much material there. We were talking earlier about C.W. Gortner's The Romanov Empress, about Nicholas's mother, mm. which is just a fantastic book. I can't recommend it highly enough. And um, there's the other relatives around the court. There's so many different angles to look at the story from, but... Um, I wouldn't rule out going back to it in the future. And I do get a lot of emails from readers saying, oh, when are you going to do Anastasia? When are you going to do Olga? (laughs) So I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I really don't. Well, 
Um, and what is the new book about? If if you can, well, if you can tell. To be honest, it hasn't been announced yet, and I probably really shouldn't tell. But since it's you, I will. <laughs> it's okay. called. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's called. Um, it's something completely different, by the way. It's still historical fiction. It's called Jackie and Maria, and it's the stories of Jackie Kennedy and Maria Callas and their relationships with Aristotle Onassis. Because <gasps> basically, Jackie stole Aristotle from Maria, and not many people realise how closely did, connected that they were. Their lives began. So I've told the story from each woman's point of view um, up to the point where, you know, he died. So, yeah. That's the next one yeah. coming out next oh, wow. summer. Well, I, as as soon as we finish this interview, I'm going to race downstairs and tell my mother who's visiting because she is the biggest Jackie is fan she? in the oh, galaxy. Fantastic. Um, <laughs> she is. <laughs> she had a book when we were growing up called I Was Jacqueline Kennedy's <gasps> Dressmaker that had these beautiful line drawings that we were all fascinated with as children. So if you ever get a, a, a I will, I'll look out for it. So that was Oleg Kostini. <laughs> that was Oleg Kostini who addressed me. Uh, no, this wasn't. This, I think this is a different. This is a like pre First okay. Lady. Okay. Um, it, it, was a, it was a young woman in oh. Washington um, who just, uh, you know, was designing her dresses when she was the wife of, of a senator. Oh, dear. So much, yeah. so much fun stuff to talk about. But I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. But this has been a great discussion. Um, before we go, though, where is the best place for our listeners to find you a bit more about you and your work and, and where you might be signing books in the near future? I am really easy to find on social media because I spend far too much time there. <laughs> So I have a website, <laughs> jillpaul.com, that you can email me through. I'm on Twitter and Facebook at jillpaulauthor, and I'm on Instagram, Instagram at jill.paul1. I post reviews on Goodreads as well. I'm all over the place, and I do love hearing from oh, wow. readers. You are. So, um, yes, I love it when people get in touch. Well, so there you go, listeners. Um, get in touch with Jill Paul and do get pick up a copy of The Lost Daughter, which is out this week, available in all formats, e-book, paperback, and audio, um, wherever you get your books. And Jill, thank you so much for making oh, time thank to you speak for the with great us today. questions. It's been a pleasure. Well, you're very, it's been a, a real pleasure for me too. And, and thank you to our discerning listeners for joining us for this fascinating discussion about the Romanovs and uh, Russian history with Jill Paul. I'm your host, Jennifer Yerimeyeva, and I'll be back soon with another fascinating interview with other authors about their new books. Until that time, thanks so much for listening.